Now we are in business. Okay, James chapter 3. This morning, James is going to talk to us about our tongues. Uh, someone go ahead and lock the doors back there. This would be an easy one to want to evacuate quickly on. Uh, in doing so, he's going to both highlight the tongue's potential for good, which is something we need to know of, when under control of the master, but it also he's going to remind us very pointedly that there's a great potential for destruction in the power of the tongue when it's not under control of a master and is out of control. Well, I might even say, as we'll see in verse 6, under control of the wrong master. These truths, by the way, were, were not new on James. Uh, he knew these truths very well, not only from the teaching of Christ, but from his Old Testament. James knew verses such as these that Psalm 34, 13, to keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. This is something that you need to do something about. You keep your tongue from that. You don't just pray that, but you keep that from happening. For the Spirit from the New Testament is self-control. Psalm 119, 172, Let my tongue sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. This is something that we strive for. We strive to let our tongues sing of the goodness of God. Proverbs 15, 4, a soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. It seems that the application of that is probably no more pronounced than in the context of a marital relationship, right? In our tongue, we have the ability to give life or to crush the spirit. And so we need to be keeping our tongue from evil and our lips from speaking. Proverbs 21:23, he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from trouble. Let's be those who guard our souls from troubles. Let's, um, as we're going to see with James, as he's already articulated in chapters 1 and 2, Let's be those who are, notice this, quick to hear. Amen? Oh, slow. Let's be slow to speak, because oftentimes our speech is uh, that which can be destructive. So let's guard our mouth. Let's guard our mouth. You will be guarding your soul from trouble. And also be slow to anger. For the anger of Ben does not achieve the righteousness of God. Insert your own name. The truth is truth. We need to guard our tongues. We need to speak slowly. We need to be quick to hear. He also said in James 1.26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, he has instead deceived his own heart, and this man's religion, which is all it amounts to, is worth less. If you remember when we were in James 1.26, this word here for deceives was a mathematical term. I remember pointing out Alex on that one. It's the idea of making a spiritual miscalculation. 
If you can't bridle your tongue, you have made a serious spiritual miscalculation about what you think you have with regard to your relationship. James is saying it might just be a form of religion, but not the power thereof. And in James 2.12, he said, so speak, speak, so speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. We must be sober-minded and keep these things ever before us. Understanding the dangers of the tongue and James' understanding of the bad theology of those to whom he's been writing, we saw that clearly throughout the entirety of chapter 2. He sets out to discourage, which is kind of an odd thing in the scriptures. Oftentimes it's all about encouragement. James is here uh, desiring to discourage many of those within the church to whom he's writing to forego the idea of being a teacher of God's word for obvious reasons. Notice what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. Clearly, he says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Again, James immediately sets out to discourage his readers from becoming teachers within the church. The word used here for teachers was a very uh, common word, um, didaskaloi in the New Testament, but it was a, a word often used of the rabbis, the teachers of the day. They were the didaskalois, they were the teachers. So it would seem that James has in mind a a mantle of leadership, a level of teaching within the church, not just a one-on-one -on -one conversation where you may teach a friend or you may teach a neighbor or you may teach your child. Obviously, you need to be teaching your children in the ways that they should go. So he's not saying that you shouldn't become teachers of your children. So it would seem that James clearly has in the context of the church gathered. Uh, contextually, it would make sense um, for James to be giving this discouragement, uh, seeing from chapter 2 the misunderstanding that they had of, of how God's amazing saving grace, how that works in the lives of God's children, the idea that you can claim to have faith without works, James is saying many of you ought not to be teachers within the local congregation. It seems from James's straightforward statement here that perhaps many of them perhaps were seeking such an office and status within the church without the necessary moral qualifications that were befitting a teaching elder. Remember, James just finished teaching on the distinction between a dead faith and living faith, and it's as if James is saying, from what he knows about those whom, to, to whom he's writing, that there are not many of you, so-called brothers, whose lives are reflective of a genuine repentance in keeping in good works. The context of chapter 2, I think, colors this very strongly. Therefore... Therefore, he says, let not many of you become teachers. Because, and notice the very end of chapter 1, James 3, 1, because you need to know something. You need to know that teachers will incur a more strict judgment 
as a result of putting themselves up as being a spokesman on behalf of God. You may remember from Deuteronomy 18 that if a prophet got up and he spoke presumptuously from the Lord and the thing that he presumptuously said was from the Lord did not come to pass, he put himself up as a teacher, the, um, the, the, the judgment, the more strict judgment that might befall his life was that of death, right? Uh, Paul... The Apostle Paul seems to make mention of this in Romans chapter 2 when he says, You therefore who teach another, teachers of truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say, verse 22, that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? And then in verse 24, he just puts the cookies on the bottom shelf. He says, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Just as it is written. You see, teachers incur a stricter judgment in that they are held to a high level of scrutiny before men. You simply cannot say one thing and do the opposite as a teacher in the church of Jesus Christ without doing serious damage to the name of God. Notice again the very end of verse 24. These false teachers, these teachers who say one thing and do the other thing, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, blasphemed among perhaps Gentiles in the context of unbelievers, perhaps blasphemed among the Gentiles with regard to Gentiles who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Either way would be an appropriate application, but the name of God is being blasphemed among them because of the duplicitousness of your living. You say one thing and you do another, you need to cut it out. Douglas Moo, in his commentary, rightly says, when we undertake to guide others in the faith, we must be especially careful to exhibit the fruit of that faith by the way we live. And James knows something about the human condition. So this idea of by the way we live, Jesus said it like this, you will know them by their fruit, by their living, by their life. James says a genuine saving faith is evidenced by the production of fruit that would be to the glory of God's name. But James knows something about the human condition, and in verse 2, he says so. He says clearly in verse 2 the problem that many face, and another reason why many, he said, should cease the, the thought of becoming a teacher within the church of Jesus Christ. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. Even those who have a genuine living faith are bound to stumble. So clearly James isn't speaking here of some kind of perfectionism within the, within the believer, within the life of the child of God. We all stumble in many ways. And at the end of chapter 2, if you remember, James quantified his faith without works as dead teaching by showing us two examples. And that was the example of Abraham and Rahab, both of whom were far from being beacons of perfectionism, right? Right? Without question. 
And then if we were to take time and we went and looked at Hebrews 11, what we affectionately call the Hall of Faith, we see an entire list of individuals of faith who stumbled in many ways. I might name just a few. Abraham's mentioned there, and Abraham was a liar and at times was very impatient with God and did things his own way. Jacob was known as being a deceiver for most of his life. Moses, the mighty Moses, who went in frustration over the people of God and out of anger, instead of speaking to the nation of Israel, as God told him, he rather took the rod and he smote the rock in their presence, disobeying God before the congregation. King David, mighty King David, a man after God's own heart, after having an affair with Bathsheba, then, as if that weren't bad enough, then sent her husband to the front of the battle lines in order to make certain that he was killed. A man after God's heart. Peter, Peter, open foot, insert mouth, Peter, well, he was the one who even denied knowing Christ at all. And then there's us. Are you feeling good about yourself? Because I gave some pretty bad examples, right? And so by comparison, we're like, ah, I feel pretty good. I haven't done that, didn't do that. But then there's us and all the ways that we too can stumble. And there are many, as James has articulated. This is why Paul in Romans 10.3 says that there is none righteous, not even one. So we need to give up on the idea of somehow being perfect in the sight of God. I've said this on many occasions thus far through the book of James, that God is in the business of striking straight legs with crooked sticks. So while you're a crooked stick, you're not perfect. God can still use your life. That doesn't mean, shall we sin all the more, that grace may abound? Paul says, ume genita, may it never be. Completely the opposite is what we ought to be striving for every single day because God has done something within us. He's at work in you to willing to work for his good pleasure. And so we are trying to be those who live by and walk according to the Spirit and allow the fruits of the Spirit to have evidence, an evidential place and stronghold and control over our lives. Listen, if you put yourself up as a teacher in the congregation, uh, by the way, there, there are... Um, in 1 Timothy and Titus, there are uh, commands in Scripture that say that such a man needs to be above reproach for this very reason. Because we do stumble in many ways. And if I get up here and I start preaching one thing, and then you know, I go through the Song of Solomon and tell, tell you how wonderfully I love my wife, but then you see me doing something completely contrary to that, you're going to go immediately, what are you going to say? This man has no credibility. He's not above reproach. I've lost my platform. I have no basis upon which to stand before the congregation and speak. This is why many of you ought not to consider being teachers in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a strong warning for those of us who are teachers in, in the church of Jesus Christ, right, Pastor? And it's with a great deal of sobriety that we look at these passages and, and cry out to God and say, Lord God, help me, this worm of a man that I am. I mean, it's been said before that if you knew what God knows about me, you wouldn't be here today. But it's also true that if I knew about you what God knows about you, I wouldn't have let you in. <laughs> Works both ways, that statement. So, let not many of you become teachers, brethren, 
because it seems that those within the church to whom James was writing, their lives were not matching the glorious gospel of grace. Their lives were not in conformity with the glorious gospel of grace. And they didn't seem to care. And they seem to say, you don't need evidential works of the Spirit of God in your life to demonstrate that God actually changed your heart. And James said very articulately, yes, you do. So you can even sit here this morning and you can argue against James all you want, but remember, James said what he said under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I think he's got your trump there. That's his trump card. The Spirit of God had me write that. So all the straw men that we want to build to come up with some scenario whereby you can actually just claim to have faith and never have works, forget it. And trust me, I've read so many um, arguments in that favor, and they all fall flat because they don't conform to the teachings of Scripture. What do the Scriptures say? And James has put it very plainly in chapter 2, and he's saying, Ergo, many of you should not be teachers in the church of Jesus Christ. James then at the end of chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, at the end of verse 2, notice how specifically he doesn't narrow this in. At first it seems like the stumbling in many ways obviously could just be in many ways in life that we stumble. But he narrows it down into what people say. He narrows it down to our words at the, at the bottom half of verse 2. He says, for, he says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says... He's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. So he's in essence, he's saying, listen, if you're, if you're capable of not stumbling with your words, if you can do that, if you can tame the tongue, you won't have any problem taming the rest of your body as well. If, if you can do it. Now, I don't know about you, but does anybody know of anybody who's ever in their entire life never stumbled in life or with what they've said in life? Is, is there anybody here this morning that would like to, to stand and give declaration that, yes, I am such a person and God is... Is there anybody? I know of no one other than the man Christ Jesus. He's the only sinless one, and that's why we need his righteousness, and that's why we celebrate it even today, the Lord's table, the broken body, and the shed blood. We need the very righteousness of Christ. Amen? So this kind of leads me also to believe that one of the good works that God's at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13, is that good work of taming our tongue, of helping us to be slow to speak, of enabling us to practice the fruit of self-control, the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the child of God in the great work of taming our tongues within our lifetimes and that to the glory of God. By this, you bear much fruit, bringing glory to God and so prove to be my disciples. We want to glorify God in everything we do, the things that we do, the works that we do, the fruit that we bear is for the glory of God. So I think that one of those great works is that work of taming the tongue. Now James is going to show for us, he's going to make a comparison here with the tongue to, in verse 3, 
the, the small bit that controls mighty horses, the small rudder that steers an enormous ship in verse 4. And then in verse 5, he's going to compare the tongue to a small spark that causes a destructive forest fire there in verse 5. And in these first two, what we're going to see in verses 3 and 4, we're going to see that James is saying that when the tongue is under control of a master or a good pilot, it can be used for very purposeful and great things indeed. It can accomplish great things when it's under control of a master or a pilot. And then in verse 5, he's going to remind us in 5 and following that, but contrary to that, if it's not under control of the right master, if you still persist to be the master of your own fate and the captain of your own soul, that tongue will be a very spark, a fire that can burn down everything and not only your life, but the lives of those within your family, your friends, your place of employment. Have you ever, ever noticed that perhaps everywhere you go you have relationship problems? And I think we have to be willing to look in the mirror and say the problem's probably not all those people. It might be me because I've got a tongue that's out of control and it's like a spark that's very destructive. Notice how James does this. Look at verse 3. He says in verse 3, Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. So with just a few strips of leather and a small piece of metal in a horse's mouth, which goes on the top of its tongue and towards the back, I've been told. I'm not much of a horseman, so I have to, I have to do research on these things, but I think I've seen it there. I'm, I'm dreadfully afraid of horses, just so you know. I'm full confession here. If you say, hey, Pastor, let's go ride horses. If I know, thank you, I'm sleeping. You'll know why. It's just I'm not sleeping. I'm just petrified of horses. They scare the life out of me, and I'll tell you why later. So with just a leather and a metal bar on top of their tongue, a horse that, by, by the way, I've, I've read that that bar that goes in its mouth there, it, it controls the horse's entire head. Like you can... Uh, a rider can control its head just with this little bar that's in its mouth. And, and so if you can control its head, you can thus in, control its entire body. See, if we can direct through its mouth and control its head, we can direct and control the entire body as well. And I think the connection that James is wanting to make here, it's nice to, to know that that's true of horses, but I don't see any horses or stallions or, or sitting out here in the congregation today, nor those to whom he was riding. They were people. And so I think he's trying to make the connection that so it's true with believers as well. And so in the way a horse can be used for purposeful and good things, whether it's pleasure riding or pulling a wagon or pulling a plow for work, whatever it may be, the child of God, likewise, can also be a very useful tool in the hands of the mighty God when he has control of their head, when he has control of their tongue, when they can master the, and tame their tongue under the lordship of Jesus Christ, he can control their head and he can give direction to their entire body as well so that our bodies are used to glorify God instead of other things that we might choose to do instead. Like the horse, everything else will follow when in the hands of the right master. And then James gives another example in verse 4. This time he uses that of a ship. 
with its rudder. Look at the ships also. They are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed. And I think this was the, the key phrase that James is wanting to make note of here in verses 3 and 4. Directed. Sometimes we use the idea of under the control of, but the controlling influence of the Spirit of God in our lives that would cause us to have self-control and thus the taming of the tongue is to give us direction. His Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will what? Direct your path. And he directs our path through his written revelation, the Word of God. This is why when we make disciples of all people, Jesus, leaving his commission, said, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And Jesus' commands started in Genesis because he was in the beginning with God. See Colossians 1. From Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation, we need to know God's Word so that we can have prosperous lives like John 10.10. Jesus said, I came that they may have life abundantly. Amen? That's what we all want. And it's all about Him directing our lives in accordance with His truth, in accordance with His Word. But all are still directed, He says, by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. James is just simply making the exact same point here. A very small thing can direct very large and sometimes unruling things. Think about how unruling a horse would be without a bit. Think how impossibly unruly a ship would be on the ocean or the seas without a rudder. And I think the connection is very obvious. An individual person, whether they're a believer or not, whose tongue is not under the control of the Holy Spirit and thus the Lordship of Jesus, are very unruly, out-of-control people. So, going back to 3.1, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, your life will incur a stricter judgment before the eyes of men and angels and God himself. So this may be perhaps one of the only places in the scriptures where we see a word of warning that's more in the, by way of discouragement. And I think it's necessary because before one ought to consider putting themselves up in front of the congregation and being a teacher of the word of God, there needs to be a great deal of sobriety and a clear understanding of God's call and a lot of breaking that has taken place in the life of the man of God. I've heard it said before that God cannot truly use a man of God until he has truly broken the man of God. And when I think of that statement, I think of this passage in James. Until the man of God gets the bit in his mouth, pulled back to his throat, and his head and his mouth is under the control of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, he can be an unruly and dangerous thing in the pulpit, saying, Thus saith the Lord. Because we are all full of pride. We're about to see that here briefly. Continues, uh, James, now unfortunately, 
Well, you know, these things are true. When we, our tongues are under the control like a horse and like a ship, these mighty things can be controlled by such a small thing. God can control us and direct our lives and lead us down the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, for his great glory. He says, my glory I will share with no one else. And so we live for his glory. But unfortunately, we also know the tongue has the ability to destroy, and James articulates that in verse 5. He said, so also the tongue is a small part of the body. So we clearly see that he's making a connection with verse 3 and 4, the bit and the rudder. So also the tongue is likened unto those things. It's a small part of our body. And yet, well, here's our, here's our sin nature. Here's our problem. It boasts. It boasts of great things. Great things, it seems, in this context <clears throat> isn't, by the way, a reference to maximizing God's glory through our lives. It would seem that boasting here in this context of boasting of great things has more of the idea of the arrogance of man, the presumptuousness of man living before God, presuming that he can make life work apart from God. Presuming that we can make life work apart from a sure word from God, I would just ask you, as you look out into the American culture, how's that working? How's the American culture looking these days as we've been shedding the fetters of God's word over the last 50 to 70 years solidly? Is it looking better out there? Are we ushering in the kingdom of Christ? Things getting better and better and better with each passing generation? <coughs> Say not. But that's the things we boast of. It's the idea of self-determination, of pride. We just finished a, a pride month, a gay pride month. Something that the scriptures clearly articulates is an abomination of God. We have a country, a nation that celebrates it for an entire month as a virtue of the heart and soul and character of a nation. Hey, listen, people are going to do what people are going to do, right? Nothing new under the sun. Leviticus 18, what do we see? As God's about to set his people out of the land of Egypt, he says, look, when you go into the land of Egypt, he gives them a moral code in Leviticus 18. He says, don't do what they were doing in the, in the, in the land of Egypt where I'm sending you from, and don't do what they're doing in the land of Canaan to where I'm sending you. So that lets us know that what they were doing in Egypt and what they were doing in Canaan are the very things mentioned in Leviticus 18. I don't have time to repeat all that, and it's very graphic. Go read it. And that's what God defines as a moral abomination. Nothing new under the sun. Doesn't mean you don't love people. You do love people. And how do you best love people? You best love people by exposing them to truth. And I don't mean, you know, this, this carries more weight than Thor's hammer. Okay? But you don't pound people over the head with it either because you can't save them. You can't hit them hard enough to get them saved. But you can open it while you open your lives and let them see that such were some of you. 
you were an immoral person and you did immoral things, whether it was like theirs or not. You were once a liar. You were this. But such were some of you, but you were washed. And you get to give an example of what the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit looks like in and through your life. And through that, you're sharing the gospel. So it's not about hating people. It's that we don't celebrate sin. And our, our country, our culture has very uh, graphically uh, turned from God. Because our tongue, it boasts of self-determination. It boasts of pride. And James says in verse 6, well, let me... So, see how great a forest fire is set aflame by such a small fire. The tongue is likened to that small fire. And the tongue is a fire. So when you come back to five, the tongue's a small part of the body, and when it's unruly, when it's not being led, directed by the right captain of the ship, or by the right master upon the back of the horse that has control of the animal, it's an unruly thing. It's likened unto a flame, See how great a forest is set aflame. Whenever I look into the American culture, I just briefly mentioned it, I see a culture, I see a nation that's aflame. How about you? And the tongue, he says in 6, is a fire. The tongue is the very world of iniquity. When you look out into the world and you see the things that you see, you know that the tongue is that which is the fire that's setting that world ablaze, and it's all a world of iniquity. You remember before the flood, God was sorry that he even created man because the intent of their heart was always to only do what? Evil. There's nothing new under the sun. Unconverted hearts trend towards the practicing of evil trend towards the abomination, moral abominations that God talks about. See also Genesis 18, Sodom and Gomorrah. We could, get, we could just walk through the Old Testament. We see this very, very clearly. And the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. Now this concept of it being the very world of iniquity, in John, in his little epistle in 1 John 2, Notice how he makes it, this, equal, uh, this connection here with the idea of the world of iniquity and the tongue. Look at John, 1 John 2. He says, do not love the world. Okay, this very world of iniquity that the father of lies has been the prince of the power of the air over. Do not love the world nor the things in the world, the world system and all that's opposed to God. That's what self-determining people do. That's why C.S. Lewis wrote his book, Shadowlands. Man has turned their back on the glory of God, and instead they see their own shadows on the, on the earth, and they have fallen in love with themselves. And they seek to make peaceful lives for themselves and happy lives. We've fallen in love with ourselves. The world of iniquity. If anyone loves the world, and the the, he says the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, and here it is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is 
from the world, the world system, the world system of self-determination, of pride, of I will be likened unto God. I will self-determine how I'm going to live my life. I don't need a, a sure word from God. I'm good enough by myself. Thank you very much. Instead of having a glad submission to God's word, I only have to submit to myself. This is the very world of iniquity. And John says very plainly in verse 17, that world is passing away and also its lusts. It's passing away. But the one who does the will of God, the one who James 2 talks about, has a claim of faith and has a life that demonstrates that, does not just says it, but does it. The one who does the will of God. Now, doing the will of God isn't that which saves you. We went over that in James chapter 2 very clearly. That's not what saves you. This is the fruit from that root. The root of justification is the free gift of God. Lest any man boast. That has nothing to do with works. It's completely apart from works. You cannot earn your salvation before God. You cannot. But once you truly get saved, James is saying, and you get the true root of justification, if you've truly been saved, there's fruit that comes from that root. You wouldn't expect a grapevine to produce apples, would you? No. What would you expect it to produce? Grapes. So what would you expect to be produced from the life of an unbeliever? The practicing of sin. What would you expect to be produced from the life of a believer? In 1 John 3, it's the practicing of righteousness. Trying to get better at being righteous. We're not always going to make it perfectly, but we're, we're practicing that. The one who does the will of God abides, lives forever. And so these are some very simple truths that has led James to the conclusion, as we started out in 3.1, that many of them ought not to become teachers, knowing that their lives are not going to be in conformity with the will of God, but instead it's going to be more descriptive of their lusts, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, self-determination. And he's saying that's not what's needed in the body of Christ for the teaching of God's word. Jesus affirming something here that I think we've all been thinking of. This passage in Matthew 12 just puts, puts it very plainly before us. Just listen here. He says, you brood of vipers. Now, this isn't you, by the way. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? So here's the tongue. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So this entire context of James 6, 1 through 11 is when it's talking about the tongue. The tongue is only putting on display what is, what's first originated from the heart. The tongue is putting on display the true condition and, and nature of a person's heart. For the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil Man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. And it seems that the treasure here for both of these would be reflective of their heart and what they bring out, what they speak. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified. We looked at that word justified last week. And this isn't the justified uh, Dikaio word that has the idea of being declared 
innocent before the holy and living God. This is the use of Dikaio that I showed you last week. They had the idea of validation or verification. What comes out of your heart by your words validates, as James has been saying in chapter 2, that's why I said a lot of people think that James' little book is simply a commentary on a lot of, of, on a lot of what Jesus has previously taught. Your words are going to make validation of whether or not you have a true faith claim or not. And also your words, you will be condemned. It will demonstrate that I, you know, I never knew you, as Jesus might say to those who might have a claim to faith without evidential saving fruit. Claiming to be an apple tree and never producing an apple might be somewhat of a contradiction. And so Jesus was saying it. James has been saying this. And so when we get back to verse, chapter 3, verse 6, the tongue is a fire. It's the very world of iniquity. As you look into the world, what you see are things that come from the heart. So I'm going to just kind of insert heart here because the tongue is that which puts the heart on display, right? The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and is set on fire the course of our lives. So as you sit here this morning, if you look into your life and you see something that looks like it's on fire, I would be willing to bet that your heart has put things through your tongue that has defiled the body and has wounded and harmed relationship. Because a tongue that's not in the control of the Holy Spirit boasts of mighty things. Where's my verse 5 at? Well, I'm too deep now. And it says right here very clearly, and sets on fire the course of our life. Again, the course, the direction, as James was making very clear about the bit and the rudder, when it's under the direction of the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the, in the context of the church, there's a course that He sets our lives on. Apart from that, we set our own course, and it's a course that looks like destruction. Oh, and by the way, he lets us also know at the very end of verse 6 here that the devil, Satan himself, is involved in the details. And, and is set on fire, that would be the tongue reflecting the heart, by hell. Jesus, when speaking to some of the Pharisees, referring to those who were the brood of vipers, he, he let them know that your father was the, your father the devil. You're doing the bidding of your father the devil. And you know, a lot of times I've said this before, but unbelievers, I didn't know this when I was an unbeliever, I didn't realize that you, can't, you can only serve one master, and everybody's serving a master. There's a master of the system of this world, lust of the flesh, eyes, pride of life. And I, I thought I was just doing what I wanted to do because I love myself. And so that's what I was doing. It. And then as you start reading scripture, you start realizing that once you get redeemed and you get released from that domain of darkness, oh, there was a domain of darkness I was in? I didn't even know I was in a domain of darkness. That made no sense to me when I was lost. But now that I can see and I read scripture, I was actually in a domain of darkness and I had a master there. And I was just doing his bidding willingly. So you can't serve but one master. So those whose lives are set on fire by their tongue, by hearts of self-direction and pride, 
or hearts that are not willing to yield and lend itself to the fruitfulness and the, and the directiveness of the Spirit of God through the words of God. And so James, again, is not mincing his words when writing to the believers there to whom he was writing. He said, my brethren. And as I made mention of last week, James, this is what you call a proverbial shot across the bow, right, of the ship, of the church. James is wanting to rattle our cage. James wants us to take a good hard look in the mirror of Scripture. Remember chapter 1, verse 22? James said, if you look into the mirror of Scripture, don't walk away from it and forget what you see. You need to see there that you're an individual who's in need of change. James is wanting to, to rattle our Christian cages to say, am I truly one of those who are the children of God? It's that simple. And then to have people leave, not second-guessing that. So last week I said, listen, if you don't know that you know that you know that you are under the lordship of Jesus Christ, that you've named him king over your life, that doesn't mean you're doing everything perfectly. No. What is, crooked sticks, right? Straight licks, right? We've gone over this a lot, but I, have to, I feel like I need to reiterate this often. And you're not saved by works at all. Zero, right? None. It's by grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone. To the glory of God alone, right? We need to make certain that we're articulating these things very plainly to one another. So if you set out to work out your salvation, Philippians 2.12, that's not a treadmill of performance that you hop on to try to please God. He's already pleased with you. He saved you freely. You just want your life to be more in conformity with His directions. And he's saying it starts a lot of times right here with the tongue that's connected to the heart. And so we look into the scriptures and we say, Lord, I'm a, I'm a man in need of change. Please help me. Isn't that good? This is just where James leaves us. Now, next week, no, next week, I'm sorry, next week we're doing a commissioning of Kate. So I may have more of a missions-minded thrust and shipwreck and snake bit kind of a sermon for us all because you know that's where Cade's heading uh, but the week after that um, when we pick back up in James um, he's going to show us just how difficult a task this truly is from verse 7 and following go read this today I mean he's going to show us just how difficult of a task this is and this is why you don't just pull yourselves up by your Christian bootstraps but instead you get on your knees and you plead for God, the Holy Spirit, to enable you to walk according to the Spirit, to have a glad submission so that the fruits of the Spirit of God can be born through your lives. It's about giving Him control and thus direction of your lives. Amen? And we're going to see that from verse 7 and following, just how difficult a task this truly is is. So let not many of you be teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such people are going to examine you tooth to nail and hold you to a stricter judgment. Let's pray.